Morning, Hope. So, wow, that's awesome. Uh, so my name's Chris Wormskirsch. I'm one of the mission group leaders at Hope. And it's a huge privilege to be here opening God's Word together this morning. So if you've got your Bible on you, if you're flipping in your phone, we're going to be in 1 Peter 4, and we're going to do verses 1 through 7 this morning. If you don't have either of those things, it'll be on the screen. But before we get into that, I want to invite us to think about exercise a little bit this morning. I think a lot of us probably over the past couple of years since we've been at home a little bit more, maybe unable to access gyms, have been thinking about exercise. But as I was reading this passage, I thought a lot about just kind of how unique exercise is in the stuff that we do in our day-to-day life, right? Because when you exercise, when you lift weights, when you remember not to skip lift day, when you remember not to skip leg day, you're tearing your muscles. And as you tear your muscles, that's the way that they grow. You know, one of the most one of the most popular things you hear with exercise is no pain, no gain. And I think that's really like it's such a weird thing. We don't like hearing that, but it's true. It's only in the process of tearing our muscles do they grow. And I think what Peter's going to tell us this morning a little bit is the Christian life is about the same way. When we exercise the Christian faith, I didn't even mean that pun. When we exercise our walk in the Christian faith, we're going to grow, but it's going to come with pain. Like in software engineering, you say that something's a feature, not a bug. We're going to see a little bit that suffering is a feature of Christianity and not a bug. But what Peter gives us this morning is a different way to think about our suffering. He's going to give us a way that we can see suffering in light of God's redemptive purposes for our lives and God's redemptive purposes for the world. And it's going to help us think when we go through trouble or if you are currently suffering, it's going to help us think differently about it and be able to bring it to the Lord more fully in praise and worship for who he is. So, like I said, we're going to be in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 7. So if you want to follow in your Bibles or follow along on the screen, it starts with, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Let's pray as we consider this. God, our Father, we're so thankful for this chance to open your word together. We're thankful for the blessing that you give us when we meditate on your word. So we pray that your spirit would help us meditate well on this word, that we'd be able to consider more fully everything that you have for us, that we can look to Jesus with all the gratitude and love and joy that he deserves, and that we can see our lives change, that we can be a light to the people around us through this passage. We just pray for clear minds and clear hearts, that we can hear you more clearly and see the way you want, us to, you want to transform us through the preaching of your word. Pray us all in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Amen. So if you were listening in there, you might have heard the one command. So this starts halfway through verse 1, and it says, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So this command is kind of central to the passage, so it will inform our main point. 
But as you follow the flow of the passage, you're going to see that every point after it kind of informs the way that we arm ourselves. So our main point this morning is that Jesus' death and resurrection help us arm ourselves with a new way of thinking about our own suffering. Oh, Jesus' death and resurrection help us arm ourselves with a new way of thinking about our own suffering. So as you kind of consider this main point, you consider the passage, arm yourselves is very like active, right? It's got this idea of taking up a weapon for a fight. And what we're going to be seeing, and what you've probably already seen if you've been a Christian for a while, is that there are a lot of struggles in the Christian life. So what God is calling us is to take this new way of thinking as sort of a weapon in the war that we fight against the flesh, in the war that we fight against our own sin, in the ways that we participate in systems of sin and violence. And my aim this morning is to help us see the way that Jesus' suffering helps us to see our own suffering differently. When we look at Jesus, we see his suffering and ours as a means by which we are transformed into Christ-likeness. Jesus is able to transform our suffering into the means by which we are set free from our own sin and brought into new life. This passage helps us to see the way that this sanctification can free us from living according to the flesh and living instead in the Spirit to Christ. So, as we've gone through this passage, as we've gone through this letter, really, we know that Peter's audience was an audience of people who were persecuted for their faith. And up until now, we've kind of had a general idea of why they are being persecuted. But this passage, I think, has one of the most explicit reasons. So look again at verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So clearly some of the reason that the original audience was being persecuted is because they had looked at the old way of living, they had looked at the way that non-Christians had lived, and they turned away from that. They said they put a pause on that way of living and instead started to live towards God. And the people whose ways of life they left behind started to push back against that and persecute them, specifically maligning them. So bringing up false charges, saying bad things about them, making up lies, and just kind of tarnishing their reputation across the board. And I think that helps, it, helps this passage speak to us now. So broadly, I think we see all over the world, even, it's, it's weird to think about that even today, Christians are being persecuted for their faith, right? Like as Americans, it's, we don't always have that right in front of us. But if you're a Christian in some Asian countries, if you're a Christian in some Middle Eastern countries, they know firsthand what it means to be persecuted for their faith. There's a lot of ways that they are physically hurt. A lot are killed for their faith. I think of Kevin a few weeks ago talking about a woman whose job was made a lot harder because they had become, become a Christian and gave up their faith in Islam, right? So all over the world, we're seeing ways where really just heavy persecution comes on Christians. But this passage also opens it up a little bit, where he's just talking about being maligned. I said just, but it's not just being maligned. It is about being maligned. You don't have to be like physically hurt. You don't have to be killed to be persecuted for your faith. And we do suffer for our faith. I think a lot of us have before. Some of us may be now. So this passage is going to help inform the way that we think about maybe present suffering or maybe even think about future suffering. And Peter does this in three ways. He looks at the past, which is how Jesus suffered. He looks at the present, which is the way that we currently suffer and the inevitability of suffering. And then he talks about the future, where he talks about the future judgment that's coming, which will eventually vindicate the saints. And we're going to look at all three of these things specifically. And in each of these three sections, 
I'm going to have a little takeaway, something that we can arm ourselves with by thinking about that, and then we'll have a few more applications at the end. So if you're taking notes, we'll look at the three sections with quick applications in the middle, and then a bunch at the end. And um, all of these ways will just compound our ways of thinking about suffering, to look at Jesus, to rethink our own, and live in joy despite the suffering that we go through. So the first, we're going to look at Jesus' suffering. So look again at 1 Peter 4.1. Since, therefore, Jesus, or Christ suffered in the flesh, and we're going to stop. <laughs> Some of these later ones, they'll be a little longer chunks. We're not going to look at five at a time. But it says, since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. The basis for the way that we think about suffering always starts with Jesus and his suffering. Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension stands at the absolute basis of our Christian lives. Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension stands at the basis of all reality. Every single thing that ever happened, will happen, is happening now, hinges on the fact that Jesus is the, risen and cr the crucified and risen Savior. So anytime you suffer, just a quick, quick application— Run straight to Jesus. Run straight to his cross. Run straight to his resurrection. That's where Peter brings us to immediately. And if you read Peter in one big chunk, you're going to see he's constantly, he is constantly at the cross. So that should be our way of living. We should be constantly at the cross. <laughs> and I love this because he's already kind of talked about the way Jesus suffered. So we're going to look at why did Jesus suffer? And then, interesting, how did Jesus suffer? So, why did Jesus suffer is just the story of the gospel, right? When God created humanity, he created humanity to reign with him over creation. He gave them his presence. He was with them in a way that they can enjoy unmitigated access to God in the garden. But then they were tempted away from listening to God's wisdom and instead listened to their own wisdom. They turned away from God in rebellion, saying that they could lead the planet better than the way that God does, better than the way that God created them to. And through that, humanity lost its real unmitigated presence of God and instead lives in, with this distance from God, living in a world of evil and death and pain, seeing ways there are violence and exploitation, the ways that we hurt each other. All of these things were allowed to run rampant because of what humanity did when they turned away from God and instead trusted in themselves. So God calls a people out of humanity called Israel, using them as the way that he would bring all of sin to one point and do away with the problem of sin. But Israel was in fact part of the problem. They too, God's own specific people, called out of humanity so that they could deal with sin, were just as much a problem as all of humanity was. So God, seeing this, sends his son Jesus in the form of a servant as a 100% man, 100% God, to take all of the evil of the world on himself and die. So that when he dies, he brings all of the world's evil and sin to the grave. And then when he rises again, he comes with new indestructible life, giving us freedom through faith in him to be free of that evil, to be free of that sin, that we could live to him and not live in these systems of violence and evil and death and exploitation. So that's where this starts. It starts with looking at Jesus, who suffered on our behalf, so that we could be free from sin, be free from death. And so when we see our suffering, we can look first to the Savior who suffered on our behalf. And I want us to bring back to chapter, it's going to be actually 1 Peter 2. I, I put 3, but it's 2. 
And it starts in verse 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. So one of the things that Jesus does in his suffering is provide us an example of how to suffer. It says that he committed no sin, neither was deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So Jesus, we look to Jesus first as the basis of our suffering. It's when we join in with Jesus that we suffer, but he also shows us how to suffer. Suffer without sin, without reviling, without threatening, because we can look at him and follow his example of trusting God in that suffering. We can trust that God is the one who judges justly, the one who holds our suffering in his hands, who's going to bring it about to his glory and our good. And I love this thing because in our passage today, verse 4-1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, we're reminded that Jesus suffered as a human. The really good news of Christianity is Jesus is still a human. He lives in a resurrected body, but when he came to the earth, he didn't come as someone who looks like a human. He didn't come as like a ghost that you can kind of touch. He came as a full human so that his suffering is the same kind of suffering that we experience. He's totally familiar with the pain and the heartbreak that we go through because he too is a human being in the same way that we are. He doesn't come in a way like a cheat code game genie. He doesn't come as Superman, but he is a human who suffered in the way that we do so that we can look to him and have faith that he knows our suffering. He knows what it's like and we can trust in him because of that. So here's maybe the first way that we can arm ourselves to think about suffering. Simply, we arm ourselves by looking at Jesus. We arm ourselves to think about suffering differently when we think about the gospel. We arm ourselves to think differently about suffering when we think about how Jesus suffered. We can arm ourselves to think about suffering in a way that we turn away from threatening, reviling, but instead learn trust, instead learn faith in Jesus, and trust that we are with the one who loves us and cares for us and judges justly. So after this, Peter turns to our present. So he talks about the inevitability of our suffering now and our former life, or the, way, or the life that we turned away from when we joined up with Jesus and felt his saving or redemptive work in our lives. So there's two things that we really want to hone in on here. So let me start again with the second half of verse 1, chapter 4. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So, as is Peter's way, you might have noticed a kind of confusing sentence in here, a little confusing phrase, and I want us to work through it a little bit, because I think for some of us, I know for me, when I was a young Christian, this sentence was really kind of scary to me. 
So he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I know today I have not been able to cease from sin. I know 10 years ago when I read this verse, I was terrified because I was like, I certainly haven't ceased from sin. And I hope that all of us in here can sit in the same boat and honestly confess that we are not ceasing from sinning either. So when the sentence comes up and you're like, oh, I ceased from sin, some people might get a little nervous, right? And I don't think what Peter's saying is that there's, you will, if you suffer once, you're done. Sin's out. You've passed the test. I think there's a couple of ways to understand it. But what I want to start with is just kind of the main points that we can say confidently. So 1 John 1.8 says that if we are without sin, we deceive ourselves. So what Peter's not saying is that there's a complete freedom from sin. John's going to say, if you think that's your case, you're deceiving yourself. It's self-deception to think you're free from sin. And Peter himself stands as a really good example of even though you can spend time with Jesus, you can suffer, you can learn all of the doctrines of God straight from God himself, you're still going to sin. Very famously in Galatians 2, like Paul writes down a conflict he has with Peter, which he says Peter is clearly sinning in. So even Peter himself is very familiar with suffering, learning the gospel, and sinning. So Peter can't even say that about himself. So we don't read this as a way of saying you are not a Christian if you've not ceased from sin. But we are saying that your suffering is ways that we could be free from more sin. It's, suffering is going to be the one of the ways that our desires are changed, the ways that we're changed. So there's two, two major ways to understand this, but I want us to hold on to this. We are saved through faith in Jesus, not from not sinning, because that's impossible. Jesus loves us in spite of our sin because he came to die for our sins. God loves us because he sees Christ in us when we have faith in him. So when we look at these two ways of understanding the verse, I'm not going to say that we can confidently know each way, but we need to hold on to our faith in Jesus as the irrevocable gift of God through which we're saved. So there's two, these two ways. I consulted plenty of commentaries, and people kind of sat on both sides. People who love Jesus sat on both sides of this, and I think both are true. So it's not like one's like way out there and one's kind of better. They're both good ways of thinking about suffering. So the first one is that the person who has ceased from sinning is the person who has been changed by their suffering. Simply put, when you suffer, you start to see the frailty of our lives. You start to see like the worthlessness of sin. You turn away from our idols. And instead, because we're suffering, it turns us, turns our hearts more towards Jesus by the power of the Spirit and more towards God. Like, as we go through this suffering, we're transformed away from the type of people who participate in sin and death, and instead we see God even more as lovely, even as more loving and compassionate and kind. So he might be saying that when you suffer in the flesh, your heart will be changed away from sinning. Now, there's another way you can think about it, where stopping sinning causes suffering. So this one kind of says, because you have ceased from sinning, that is why you are suffering. And this one does fit a little bit better in terms of the passage. I've read this verse a lot, but verse 4 again. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So what it might be saying is, because you've turned away from the flesh, because you've turned away from these patterns of life that were before you, not of the ways of the Spirit, but the ways of the flesh, you will inevitably suffer. 
And I think a lot of us can really experience that a lot, and we'll look at it a little bit more soon. But the main point, too, is that it says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So either way, when you cease from sinning by the power of the Spirit, you're trying to live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And that will cause suffering. Or your suffering will cause you to live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. But either way, we see suffering as a tool by which God uses to change us and transform us. So we can arm ourselves to think about suffering as both inevitable, but also a tool in a loving God's hand to change us, to give us a new way of life, to give us a new way of living, one that's more in line with his spirit and less in line with the ways of evil and death, less in line with the ways of violence that we're so used to and so encumbered by. And so I think it's really interesting that in verse 3, it says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I just love this little sentence he starts with. For the time that is past suffices. I was getting this vibe of like, if you met another adult, if you went up to an adult and said, would you like this can of Gerber strained peas? They'd be like, whoa, no, the time for that is long gone. I eat steak and potatoes now. <laughs> I kinda, that's kind of the vibe that I get. Is like Peter's like, that way of living was for a time that's long past now. Instead, we live in a different kind of world where we live and eat adult food. Whatever that was, that is long past. So some of us just need to hear, if that's your way of life, that way is long past. The time, is that, the time for that has sufficed and it's past. It's now time to live in the Spirit. It's now time to live according to what God wants us to do and live according to His purposes in the world. But I think what we don't want to miss out on is how like, counter, literally countercultural this, sent- this sentence is, how, how the original audience would have heard this. Because what Peter's listing aren't just like things that people do, but some of these things were like literally baked into society and their practices. So when he mentions like drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties, there were gods in the Roman Empire who like, that's how you worshipped. You would go to the temple and participate in like temple ritual sex. You would drink, you would party, you would eat meat, sacrifice to idols. And if you didn't do that, you were considered like a revolutionary. You were considered like a rebel against the government, a rebel against Roman gods, even really just a menace to society. So this, this is really hard to hear this sentence for the original audience because what they're hearing is the way that culture, the way that culture functions today, time has passed. We live in a different culture of the church, one that's ruled by the Spirit, one that's away from the flesh, and one that doesn't operate according to that anymore. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we've, we probably feel that a lot today, right? Like for high schoolers, the peer pressure to do drugs, the peer pressure for premarital sex, sometimes that could get really hard to say no to. It seems like everyone else is doing it, so why can't we? Or if you go to college, it might seem that some college culture is really just about partying. And I, even some people in their jobs could be constant happy hours after work. When you turn on the TV, everything's like sexual content, everything's extraordinarily violent, so much like foul language. Like, it just seems like some of this stuff is baked even in our culture to the point where it's so hard for us to move away from these things. 
But what Peter is saying is we have to move away from that because that time is past. We live in a time away from all of this sensuality, this drunkenness, this lawless idolatry, and instead we're called to live in the age of the Spirit, in the age of the Son who rules over everything, and to expect that that's going to cause some suffering. Because you, I mean, even just at some of the most base levels, we're not going to be watching the same TV shows. We're not going to be going to the same places. We're not going to be having the same hobbies because the time for that has passed and we're called to live in something else. So you might be made fun of for not watching that hot new show because it also has so much graphic content. You might be ostracized from your class because everyone's drinking and you're not going to those same parties. But we're called to faithfulness in Christ, arming ourselves to see this suffering as part and parcel of the Christian life to live according to the Spirit instead. So when you arm, the way we arm ourselves with this is just that we have to arm ourselves with the inevitability of suffering. But again, arm ourselves with knowing that this is one of the tools God's using to change us. One of the tools that we're using to get rid of the flesh, to stop living according to the sensualities of humanity, but instead live according to the, live according to the way that God calls us to. So now we're going to be moving into our third section, which is the future, the vindication for the saints. And this one's, again, kind of halfway through a sentence, but it's a huge sentence. So this is chapter 4, verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So here's the scary truth of the sentence. Those who live a life of debauchery and malign you will come to face the judgment seat of God. Every human who's ever lived comes before the judgment seat of God. Hebrews says it's destined for all of us to die once and come before the judgment seat. And at the judgment seat, we're going to give an account for every single thing that we did. All of the sins we committed, all of the half-good things that were kind of twinged with our own selfishness, our own self-centeredness. And we're going to come before the creator of all things and give an account for that. And here's the good news. For those of you who know Christ, you can be, you can be confident that we're going to be given the all clear, that God's going to look at, look at us and see Jesus. And that's this beautiful truth called justification that the New Testament talks about all the time. Those who have faith in Jesus know that they can have confidence in the judgment seat that will be found righteous before God because of the saving work of Jesus. But the reality is, if you don't know Jesus, there isn't that same confidence about the judgment seat. There's not that same confidence that we can know that we'll be standing before the, God, before the God of all creation as righteous. But instead, there's just the fear that everything that we've done will stack up against us. So for those who don't know Christ, this judgment seat is coming. And I hope, beyond all hope, you can find yourself in Christ as part of the family, knowing that you'll get the all clear because of what God did in Christ for us. And for those of us who know Jesus, live in the joy knowing that this suffering does not have the final word. This maligning, whatever physical persecution, anything that happens with jobs, friendship, family because of Jesus, even death itself doesn't have the final word. But it's Jesus and his death and resurrection that give us the confidence to face this suffering with joy and with peace, knowing that just because right now it seems like everything works against us, that's not going to be the way it is forever. We already know because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus that this maligning, this persecution will be judged. 
and those in Jesus will be found in the right. And then I love this little sentence. This is such a little Peter thing to do because he throws this really, really loaded sentence on and then moves on immediately after. So I want us to spend a little time thinking about verse 6. It says, For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. You're like, okay, all right, that's cool. So we're going to look at a few ways that we can understand this verse. But again, just like I did last time, I want us to have one thing to hold on to. One little sentence that when we look at this verse, when you bring it up in mission group, we bring it up over dinner with your friends or your family, we want to hold on to this one truth. Whatever this means, it means that Jesus Christ is in the business of saving people. Jesus' mission is saving people. It's saving us. It's saving our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our friends, everyone who came before us, and everyone who's coming after us. So if you feel like you're getting caught up in the weeds a little bit, and the, or if you want to study this further, like by all means, we are invited. Psalm 1 invites us into chewing on God's word, growing, and seeing it as a means of blessing. So it's a blessing to be able to study this, but it is complex. But hang on to this. Jesus is in the business of saving people. So we're going to look at three kind of ways to understand this. And again, people who love Jesus come up with all these ways. These are all people who want to follow Jesus, participate in the church. And then some get a little strange to our modern ears, but we're going to look at them. So the first thing that it might mean is that Jesus is preaching to people who are dead at the time of the preaching. <laughs> so you might have heard this. This is a capital O Orthodox in somewhat lower O Orthodox view that like when Jesus was dead over Easter weekend, like that Saturday, he goes into hell and to pre or into Hades and he preaches to all this, all the people who are down there, brings the gospel to them. And then on Sunday rises again. So this you might've heard is the harrowing of hell. And that's the idea that people who were dead at the time of Jesus preaching were the ones that Jesus preached to. It could mean that Jesus was preaching to people who were spiritually dead. So they're physically alive, like they're walking around, you can touch them, you can talk to them, but they weren't found in Christ, they weren't living according to God's will. So those three years that Jesus spends on the earth preaching to the whole world, he could be meaning that part. So the New Testament, especially like Ephesians 2, preaches, or teaches that when we are apart from Christ, our bodies might be animated, our nerves and our electrons or whatever may be firing, but we are spiritually dead. So Peter could be saying that Jesus was preaching to people who were spiritually dead but physically alive. Or a third way to understand it is Jesus is preaching to pe Jesus was preaching to people who were alive but are dead now. So this could simply mean that the gospel has been going out since the beginning of time that anyone who's alive has had a chance to hear God's message and join in his family. So this concept could be about like the Old Testament saints, like the people who followed God before Jesus. They were in some way preached the gospel. There's this really interesting verse in Galatians 4 that God pre-preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So the gospel's been active. We may not have seen it in the way that we understand it, but Old Testament saints were invited into this communion as well. But yeah, so those are, those are three ways to understand it. Ask your mission group leaders. They'd be love to do a little more research into this. Uh, bring it up at your next party. See what kind of fun you can have. But just hold on to the fact that Jesus, Jesus is in the business of saving people. He's in the business of saving you. 
He's in the business of saving me, saving us, saving everybody in the world and in all of history. So this is what we think. We finally arm ourselves with the hope of vindication. We look at our suffering now knowing it doesn't have the final word. And then we arm ourselves with the ability to think more clearly about it in the future, knowing that the saints who follow Jesus will be vindicated someday, that that doesn't have the final say. So we just want to look at a few more applications. Not too many, but if you're writing them down, I have four. So the first application here, Jesus is in the saving business. So turn to him to be freed of your old sinful life and be spared from future judgment. Some people here, and really all of us, the first thing we need to do when we think about suffering, either current or future, turn to Jesus. Some people may not know him at all, so the call here, turn to Jesus at all. Trust him, learn to love him, learn to see him as the answer to all of the world's problems, and be invited into his changed way of life and changed, or invited into his family. And for those who already know him, you will never not turn to him enough. You always, we always are invited to turn our minds and our hearts to Jesus. So pray for the Spirit's help to turn to Jesus, to bring our suffering to him, to bring everything going on to him. Our first prayer, our first thought when suffering occurs, our first thought before suffering occurs needs to be Jesus. Okay, so if you just want to write down application one, Jesus, you'll get the point. <laughs> so what we need, and just to kind of sum up, we need to learn how to see suffering as inevitable. Suffering is the mark of someone who is fighting against their sin in the flesh. And really, suffering is the path to glory. When we participate in Jesus' suffering, when we suffer on Jesus' account, we know that we're going to be vindicated someday. We're going to join Jesus in his glory, live with him in eternity, face to face, in a way that we'll never be able to imagine now. But think about suffering differently now as inevitable and as a tool that God uses. Here's one that maybe needed to go first, but I think a lot of us don't think this way. This passage is not inviting us to go out and look for suffering. <laughs> it's not inviting us to go out and see what we can do to invite suffering. Suffering is going to come, but what, we, what Peter's really concentrated on is people who suffer because they've turned away from the flesh, people who suffer because they've turned to Christ. So we don't need to go out looking for suffering. It's going to happen. But I think some people have this idea that we need to go out and like find suffering. So just, if you're not suffering now, you will. If you're suffering now, hopefully this is some sort of a balm to your soul. But what we can just do for our final application is, if you're not suffering now, prepare to think about suffering differently. Take this time as a sweet time with the Lord to think through this passage, to walk or let the Spirit work in your heart through this passage that we can be prepared when suffering comes to think about it differently. Like, I love this. This is like a little train. For those who maybe aren't suffering now, this is a training session. This is a time to get a couple of laps in and start thinking about it differently. If you're suffering now, the invitation is to, by God's help, start thinking about it differently now. So, yeah, I just, I just hope that as you study this passage more, thinking about Jesus, thinking about what he's done and what he will do, it can ease suffering that you're going through now or prepare you for suffering that's coming soon. So we'll land this plane here now. 
we're commanded to see ourselves and our suffering differently. The suffering of Jesus invites us to reimagine what it means to suffer as a Christian. We are to see our suffering as a means of sanctification, a way that we can learn to die to sin. The process begins with looking at Jesus' own death and resurrection, seeing it as the basis of our salvation and of our transformation. We can then look at our own suffering and see it as the means by which we and our desires are changed and directed towards God. These changed desires will pull us out of the life of the flesh and move us toward the worship of God and help us live according to his will. This will invite more suffering, but we know God will vindicate us in the last days. And we have hope because we know Jesus, the hope of salvation for the entire world, the one who works endlessly for our salvation and everyone else's. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came as the humble man who died on our behalf, who suffered in the way that we do as a human, so that we can rethink, of, rethink about our own suffering. And we pray, Spirit, as we approach the Lord's table, as we proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes, that we'd be strengthened and be emboldened and just be given joy to look at the life of the Christ follower as one of joy, one of suffering, but not as one who suffers without hope. So we pray that you'd give us hope, pray that you'd help us arm ourselves with thinking about suffering differently through this time, and pray that as we go out throughout this rest of the week, we'd be a beacon of hope to the people we interact with. Pray this in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand and respond in song.